let's return to Micah. Micah, as we enter our third week in the prophecy by Micah. And I know it's been really dry. There hasn't been a whole lot of preachy opportunities per se, but um, we'll get to some of that. It's harder than you may think to get up here and try to make going into captivity sound interesting for three weeks. So, Micah chapter 1, and um, it takes boring lessons to cover what we've been covering. We're going through the meaning of some of these names, the wordplay that we find in this opening chapter. Let's begin another exciting lesson this week by reading verses 8 through 16. Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls. For her wound is incurable, for it is come unto Judah. He has come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Declare ye it not at Gath, weep ye not at all in the house of Aphra. Roll thyself in the dust. Pass ye away, thou inhabitant of Sapphire, having thy shame naked, the inhabitant the inhabitant of Zaanan, came not forth in the morning of Beth Ezel. He shall receive of you his standing. For the inhabitant of Maroth waited carefully for good, but evil came down from the Lord unto the gate of Jerusalem. O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Therefore shalt thou give presents to Moresh Ethgath. <laughs> the houses of Oxib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. Yet will I bring an heir unto thee, O inhabitant of Marisha. He shall come unto Adullam, the glory of Israel. Make thee bald, and poll thee for thy delicate children. Enlarge thy baldness as the eagle. They are gone into captivity from thee. All right, we see in this opening chapter that God's judgment is on the way for both the house of Judah and the house of Israel. They have forsaken God in favor of false gods, and God's had enough. Micah has come on the scene to warn that captivity is looming. He's picturing this captivity by his behavior in verse 8, where He will go about naked and he will wail and howl. And I tried to talk about what that might have meant. I don't necessarily think that he went around in his birthday suit, but probably stripped of some sort of outer garment, but don't know for sure. Uh, Just seems to make sense that God would not have him uncover his shame while he's proclaiming the word of God. But so severe will this judgment be that their wound is said to be incurable in verse 9. The Assyrians would brutally make their way through the northern kingdom of Israel, and they would get all the way to the gate of Jerusalem. But remember last week, we talked about how God is merciful and that He gives people space for repentance. Um, Judgment here is a long time coming. It had been generations of disobedience. It had been God sending prophet after prophet 
after all the wicked kings of Israel. And you can read all that and you see all the kings did evil in the sight of the Lord in Israel. And God still was merciful to give them time to repent. And yet, they, they didn't. In fact, they mocked the prophets. They abused the prophets. They killed them. And they wouldn't listen. And so God now is ready to bring judgment. But understand, God holds off as long as He can because He wants you to get right with Him. Isn't that a blessing? Uh, He's very patient with us. But this judgment was going to be so severe, uh, the time had finally come that this wound is said to be incurable. And it's not that God couldn't protect them or heal them. They didn't want it. Remember, when you throw out the great physician, you throw out the the healing, the prescription. And so the wound is going to be incurable for Israel. But the example I gave to to prove that I believe God would have been merciful to them had they only repented. Remember, Jonah goes to the town of Nineveh and he cries against it and says, in 40 days you're going to be destroyed. And yet they repented and God didn't destroy it. And so God is very merciful to us. He's very long-suffering and uh, He's very patient. And we closed out last week with the first part of verse 10 where it says to Judah, concerning Israel's demise, don't publish it in Gath. Don't declare it at Gath. And we don't want to give the enemy reason to rejoice over God's people. And so when somebody falls, we don't have to go out there and broadcast it. We don't have to hide from the fact of what is taking place if questioned but we certainly don't have to broadcast it out there for the whole world to see and for Gath to have reason to rejoice over us. Because the perception will be to those who don't understand it all that somehow God is weak because He didn't deliver. But that's not the case. We just rebel against God. But the world may not understand all that, and so we don't want to give the the world reason to say, see, I knew God didn't exist. If God existed, this wouldn't have happened to you. Well, that's not necessarily true. We, We understand that here. And the application I gave last week was just stay off of social media when it comes to gossip. Just don't do it. Especially when it comes to the failures of others. Don't air out your dirty laundry. Learn to restrain yourself and not engage in any of it. Uh, the enemy is going to put the bait out there to see if you'll bite. They, they, wanna, they want a reason. So anyway, like I said, we don't sweep issues under the rug. If we need to address an offense to those without, we can do so wisely and prudently. We don't have to. Uh, we don't have to be ugly about it. And and I would say this: if you have to address something, you have to you have to lace it with godly principles, so that they will understand why it is something has taken place. Remember what David prayed in Psalm twenty-five, two: "Oh my God, I trust in Thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph." Over me. So that was last week, and that's as far as we got. Over the last two weeks, I've been talking about the play on words that we find in Micah, and we're going to look at that in depth today with the name of these towns that are mentioned. That God is using the name of these towns to emphasize his message to Judah. So let's pick up where we left off in the second half of verse 10. It says, In the house of uh, Aphra, Roll thyself in the dust. Afra means dust. And so the message here is in the house of dust, roll thyself in the dust. (laughs) 
while they were not to publicize their captivity to the enemies around them, they were to mourn and have deep sorrow in their own country. And they were to display that through this dust. To be covered in dust in, in those days. And we still see it today if you ever see footage over in the Middle East um, and, and some other places where they will throw dust in the air and they will just get covered in dust and then they'll sit in the dust. They'll, that's what would happen then. And it was a sign of just sorrow and, and mourning. And it would often be accompanied with repentance to be covered in dust because you're, you're humbling yourself. In Job 42.6, Job said, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so it was, it, it's often associated with repentance, this kind of uh, humility here. But we, we know that there are people who are professional whalers even today uh, over there in the Middle East, and, and they can put on a show, but it, nothing's happening in the heart. And, and God here is trying to get to the heart. And it may also be a reminder to return to your Creator who first formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life. God told Adam, After the fall, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So from dust we're taken, and from dust we're going to go back. Isn't that exciting? Amen, Brother Chuck? We were just talking about that this morning. We're going the way of the grave, and we're going to return to dust if the Lord doesn't, um, if the Lord tarries. David said in Psalm 7, 4 and 5, If I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy, let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. Selah. And so this idea of being covered with dust uh, is just this picture of humility, um, lowering yourself. Look at verse 11. Pass ye away, thou inhabitant of Sapphire, having thy shame naked. Um, now Micah turns to the town of Sapphir. And, and in this verse, we'll also see uh, Zayanin and Beth Ezel. And it's all pictures here of what God is trying to say. Sapphir means beautiful. And it even when you look at the root word here, it even means to glisten. So glistening beautifully, like today in the snow. <laughs> And so anyway, it's to glisten beautifully. And, and, and I don't know, but it kind of sounds like it's probably something to do with a sapphire. Sapphire, sapphire. You, you pay good money for this kind of, this kind of teaching, amen. And, and a sapphire is a beautiful gemstone that uh, it, it glistens. And so anyway, <laughs> praise the Lord. Um, this town apparently represented some form of prosperity, there appears to be the connection from the name of the town being beautiful and the fact that this town is where it is said that their shame would be revealed. And so there seems to be a connection here to how they lived. I think of this town like when you, when you read about the rich man in Luke chapter 16 where it says there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And that's the imagery I kind of think of with Sapphire. And, and I think that's 
the message here. Um, those who you think you've got it made, think again. Don't trust in uncertain riches because judgment is coming. And this beautiful town which was glistening with beautiful inhabitants would be beautiful no more. And those who had the luxury of finer clothing would be stripped of their garments as they were taken captive. Remember from last week, there's nothing beautiful about being led away captive. There's no pictures of people being led away captive in their finest suits, right? Um, They're stripped of everything of value, and they're left with nothing. And so they would be stripped here of all that was beautiful and all that was of value. And here we find that they would be stripped to the point of the shame of their nakedness being revealed. And so this is going to be a severe uh, thing. For those who lived lavishly, they would feel the brunt of this more, right? If you were poor going through the Great Depression, you may not have knew you were in a Great Depression. And so if you lived very well and you had a sudden change of lifestyle, that would be a lot more brutal to go through. And that's the picture here, I believe. And uh, there's a more extreme shift their disgrace would be even more unbearable because they've gone from this lavish lifestyle of being finely dressed to nothing. Next we see that the inhabitant of Zaanan came not forth in the morning of Beth Ezel. He shall receive of you his standing. Beth Ezel means the house of joining. In some form or fashion, Beth Ezel would have been joined to Zayanin. And I don't know to what extent. I don't know if it just means they were close neighbors or if they were somehow literally connected, but it, it means that they were side by side. I would imagine it would be something like what we might say Dallas Fort Worth, Minneapolis, St. Paul, where these there's these metroplexes where we just combine the two names together, but they're really two separate cities. And, and I think that's probably what Beth Ezel and Zayanin uh, kind of refer to, something like that. Zayanin means the sheep pasture. And, and when, you, when you break down the word and you look at the root word of this, it has the idea of going in and out to find pasture. And so it's, it's also picturing the inhabitants, this, this multitude of inhabitants of, like sheep. But it says that they came not forth unto the morning of Beth Ezel. They, they came not forth to the house that was next to them. And, and here's Beth Ezel. They're, they're mourning. The enemy has come. And yet Zayanin's doing nothing about it. Um, they're unable or they're unwilling to come to the aid of their neighbors. And Beth Ezel here is, is, is they're, they're wailing. They're, they're being taken over by the enemy. And the enemy's grip is coming over the region. And as they began to cry out for help, Zayanin right next door says, sorry, can't help you. Maybe because they were just afraid of the enemy. Matthew Henry wrote this, Those may well think themselves excused from helping their neighbors who find they have enough to do to help themselves and to hold their own. End quote. As towns would fall to the Assyrians, neighboring cities and towns would also be crippled in some form or fashion as they marched their way through. And, and some think that the illusion here may also apply to the fact that Judah was joined 
to the house of Israel. And that as Israel was falling, the, the neighbors to the south did nothing to help them. Judah really didn't do anything when the Assyrians came through. And I don't know why that was. I don't know if it's because of the message of the prophets or maybe they just thought they were better, but they didn't help. And so some people see that kind of picture here, this play on words, and it might have something to do with that. Uh, At the end of the verse, it says, He shall receive of you his standing. The he here refers back to where we said it's talking about the Assyrians. And so the Assyrians would receive of Zayanan his standing. Um, Receive here means to take. It it, it means, um, it's not like receiving a gift. We we might see like uh, receiving a tribute where you're paying something. And so it's, it's receiving that kind of thing. And, uh, and so they would receive, standing means like a station. So they, this town, Zayanin, would become like a military outpost. They would be stationed there as, as they were conquering portions of the land. And so they would be encamped at Zayanin, and they would take their expense of their encampment, from Zayanin, which makes sense because this was the beautiful town. This was the town that had the money, that had uh, more to do. And so they could plunder that city to pay for the fact that they were encamped there as they were going through. And so anyway, they would also carry away the captives, which we know. Verse 12, For the inhabitants of Maroth waited carefully for good, but evil came down from the Lord unto the gate of Jerusalem. So Maroth means bitter springs. Bitter springs. They waited carefully for good, but they were grieved over the fact that no better situation came. There was, there was no sweetness to any of this. Nothing better was coming of it. Only evil came. And because of this evil, they were in bitterness. And like a bitter spring, they would cry tears of bitterness. Just bitter tears. And, and notice the reminder here that this evil came from the Lord. You see, God has to remind them and keep this before them that the punishment you're going to experience, it's of my hand because you disobeyed me. It's not because I can't deliver you. It's not because the Assyrians are greater than me and their gods are higher. But it's because you turned your back on me. They forsook God and His law. And I want you to understand this morning that a life lived apart from God and His Word will only lead to bitterness and captivity. When you forsake God, you're going to go into captivity of some fashion. And it's going to be a bitter life. And in the place of good, we will only find evil. There's all kind of people that are bitter today. And it's because they don't honor God. They never seem to experience peace. And it's, it's something over and over. It, there's never stability. And the enemy just keeps advancing in their life. Well, they rebelled against God. And we see that this evil came unto the gate of Jerusalem. Remember in verse 9, we, we read that he is coming to the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. So the evil which came was the Assyrians... And they were at God's command. 
God uses people and nations as an extension of his arm. And he's able to do whatever he wants to do. And I just want to emphasize right here, don't ever think that God isn't in control. He's not up there going, oh man, I didn't, I didn't see that Trump was going to be in peace. I didn't, I didn't know that was happening. He's never surprised. He knows what's going on. He's in complete control of everything. And so the Bible says in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. He can do whatever he wants to do. If he wanted to put it into the heart of Saddam Hussein to go into Kuwait, he could do that. And if he wanted to put it into the heart of the United States to go and kick him out, he can do that. And I was so, so glad in one of the deployments I was on, I was privileged to be with a, with a godly chaplain. <laughs> Amen. And uh, he was a Baptist chaplain, Southern Baptist chaplain. And, and I remember he would, they would pray before any combat mission would, would fly. And, and he would always let them know, you're an extension of God's arm. <laughs> and I thought, man, that's good. And uh, let's go kill some bad guys. <laughs> After Nebuchadnezzar got his heart right with God, he said in Daniel 4.35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he, speaking of God, doeth according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? <laughs> and, and it's just a comfort to know. I know the world's going crazy. But God knows exactly what's going on. And He knows how to take care of His own through the process. And so we don't have to fear. God can, can use nations as He sees fit, both to bless and to curse. And so just keep that in mind as we see the insanity that's out there and things that are brewing. And, and in this instance, God allowed the Assyrians to come all the way into the gate of Jerusalem. Second Chronicles Chapter 32, verses 1 through 3 say, After these things and the establishment thereof, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, and they did help him. And so we see confirmation of this prophecy that uh, the Assyrians got right to, the, to Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 28 through 32 say, He has come to Aiath, he has passed to Migron and Michmash. He hath laid up his carriages. They are gone over the passage. They have taken up their lodging at Geba. Rama is afraid. Gibeah of Saul is fled. Lift up thy voice, O daughter of Galam. Cause it not to be heard unto Laish, O poor Ananoth. Madmana is removed. The inhabitants of Gibeah gather themselves to flee. As yet he shall remain at Nob that day. He shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. And so he's going to advance all the way to Jerusalem. Look at verse 13. O thou inhabitant of Lachish, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Now, the towns, the meanings, the pictures so far have been fairly, fairly straightforward, but 
This verse, it gets a little more complicated to understand all that is meant. And maybe it's just me. Somebody here may be very smart. I'm not. But we can piece together from other biblical references as we look at the town of Lachish that it was a strong city. In the days of Joshua, as they were beginning to conquer the land, Lachish is mentioned as one of the royal cities of the Amorites. Um, the king was there, and, and it was a, considered a strong city. And then in the days of Amaziah, king of Judah, when they, was, when they were conspiring against him, he fled to Lachish, this fortified outpost, if you will. Now, he fled there and got killed, so I don't know how much it helped him. But uh, anyway, I, I, don't, I, I don't know that I can be dogmatic in the meaning of the name Lachish. It, it was, there's hardly any opinion out there or anything that says definitively this is what Lachish means. Although a lot of people believe the meaning of the town of Lachish has something to do with the kind of town that it was and the fact that it was fortified and that it was a, a strong city. The only definition I came across from one person who was dogmatic about it said it means invincible. Well, it's not. The children of Israel took it, and then the Assyrians took it. But anyway, um, the, the Babylonians, when they came in later, it was called a defensed city, uh, meaning it was fortified. And so it would seem that as the Assyrians went through the house of Israel and they began to take some of these outlying border towns in Judah... Because these towns, if you can picture on a map, and, and if, if you don't know, just forget about it. But So you kind of come down from the north, and then the house of Judah, Philistia was here. They didn't always have the occupation there because they battled with the Philistines all the time. And so there were kind of these border towns right there as you would kind of come down, and then you could go eastward towards Jerusalem from these towns, or maybe even northeastward from some of these. And so Lachish was kind of down here on the border of Philistia. I think we'll talk about that here in just a minute. But, um, and so as they, would, as they would come in, they would start to take these little border towns, and it appears that Lachish was probably the last city taken by the Assyrians as they were advancing through Judah toward Jerusalem. In Isaiah 36, verses 1 and 2, it says, now it came to pass in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And so this was a very strategic city to take. It was an important city uh, to, to win. Because after this defense city had fallen to the Assyrians, then the king of Assyria was more emboldened to send Rabshakeh to uh, Jerusalem and start to taunt Hezekiah and, the, inhabitant, and the, the inhabitants there. And you can read all of that over in Kings where he begins to mock their gods and all this kind of thing. And so Lachish here, it was just a, a fortified city. And because it was fortified, they obviously had chariots. It says, bind the chariot to the swift beast. I don't know what the swift beast is, but it must be something fast. Could be horses, I don't know. They weren't to trust in those things. But we know under the days of King Solomon... He had all kind of horses and chariots. And so they had chariots. They bind them to a swift beast. Somebody said it might be a, some sort of a dromedary. I don't know. That don't make sense to me. But So anyway, they had these swift beasts, I reckon, and they uh, put the chariots to it. And, and the imagery here is 
Why would you flee a fortified city? This is lakish. This is, this is, an out, this is a military outpost. A royal city. It, it was an important city. Why would you flee lakish? Well, you're fleeing because it's going to fall. And then we read in verse 13 that Lachish is the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgression of Israel were found in thee. There's really only two viable options as to what that means. The first option, which seems to be the most commonly held position, is that Lachish had adopted the idolatry of the house of Israel, which primarily was the worship of the golden calf that Jeroboam set up when he took over the northern kingdom. And, uh, and they're said to be the beginning of the sin, Samaria was. And, and so Lachish here is said the beginning of the transgressions uh, there in Judah. And apparently, if that's the case, Lachish would have been the first city to adopt the worship of the golden calf in the realm of Judah, Judea. The second option, which I currently lean towards, and I think that the next verse supports, is that Judah had sinned in that they had reached out to other nations for their help. They were making leagues with other nations. Instead of turning to God for their help, they were turning to other nations looking for help and deliverance from their enemy. This is uh, something that the house of Israel had also tried. And so when we read that Israel's sin was found in Judah... Well, Israel had tried. They once trusted the Assyrians. Oops. And here's Judah. They're now reaching out to other nations, namely Egypt, and and they're looking for help from Egypt. And Egypt's going to be like, we didn't say we'd help you. We just took your gifts. Amen. Um, And so, anyway, they, they were reaching out for help. Instead of reaching out to God, I'm getting spit all over my tablet, man. Ugh. This tiny squeezy, brother. We need to do like pit crews in between sermons. All right, next point. Amen. Um. And so, anyway, Lake Ishir. <laughs> the situation of Lake is what makes this interesting um, as far as reaching out to other nations. As I said, this would have been a, an outpost, a military outpost, a fortified city, a good city. It's, it seems that there are those who believe that Lachish was the city which was used to negotiate with Egypt. Instead of, you know, coming to D.C., let's meet over in Turkey for the summit. And so instead of meeting in Jerusalem, they would meet in Lachish, to talk about this. I, I can't find that anywhere. This is just what I, what I read. And it's a thought that's out there. Pretty interesting though. And so anyway, they were reaching out to other nations. That's the bottom line. But the imagery of fleeing on the chariots, you know, it, it just makes me wonder if Egypt isn't somehow tied in with that because Egypt was known for their chariots. And that's usually a connection we find in the Bible. So there may be a reference there. Isaiah had warned Judah, don't trust in Egypt. And remember, Isaiah is a contemporary of Micah. Isaiah would have come on the scene just a little bit earlier. But Isaiah is out there saying in Isaiah 20 verses 5 and 6, And they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and of Egypt, their glory. 
And the inhabitants of the isle shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation, whether we flee for help to be delivered from the, the king of Assyria. And how shall we escape? And so they were, they were looking to these other nations with this expectation that they would come and help them. And then in Isaiah 30, verses 1-3, through 3, Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down to Egypt, and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame, and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. And so that which they were going to look to for help, it wasn't going to be there. It was going to be confusing. Isaiah 31.1 says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help, and stay on horses and trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. And so Isaiah was clear, man. You, you trust in Egypt, they're not going to be there to help you. I want to tell you this morning, you can trust in the world if you want, but they're not going to be there. If you're trusting in the world, man, you're heading for trouble. Despite the warnings not to put their trust in men, Judah still went ahead. They conspired with Egypt to ask for help. And all God really wanted them to do was look to me for help. Quit looking to everything else around you. And I would say this morning, how quickly do we try to find remedies outside of God's will? Something happens in our life and, and, and it's a major situation and we've got to deal with it and we know that there needs to be a solution. And instead of praying and waiting on God, we, we instead take matters into our own hands and we end up in a bigger mess. And here's Judah and they're, the answer's right here. Just look upward. Turn to the God of heaven and yet we're going to look to Egypt. Ethiopia, the Isles. We'll see in the next verse, I believe they're talking about looking towards the Philistines. And so they're looking all these places trying to find help, and it wasn't going to come. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9 says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Amen. Look at verse 14. Therefore shalt thou give presents to Moresh Gath, the house of Oxib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. Now this verse begins with therefore, which means it's connecting back to the previous thought. So if you agree with the idea that the sin of Judah was that they looked to other nations for help, just as Israel had tried once, then in my mind this verse makes much more sense with that, in, with that thought. The giving of presence is an effort to persuade others to help you. That's the picture here. And it's kind of a bribe, if you will. Lachish, as this fortified outpost, would try to negotiate even with the Philistines for help by sending these presents to Morsheth Gath. And it is thought this town was in Philistia, different from Morsheth in Judea. Oh, I'm getting confused with all of this, amen. I think the first week I mentioned it might be the same town. Some people believe it's a different town altogether. To separate it, they add Gath to make one identifiable as belonging to the Philistines. One is belonging to Judea. I don't know for sure. But anyway, their, their attempted bribe here would fail. 
the rest of the verse says, the houses of Achzib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. And so the kings of Israel here do not refer to the northern kingdom because by this point, they would have fallen and the only kings left would have been the kings of Judah. And that would have been the only existence of Israel after the house of Israel fell. So there's a shift there. But um, Achzib means deceitful. And so we're back to this play on words. According to Strong's Concordance, it's deceitful in the sense of a winter stream which fails in the summer. There's an expectation that doesn't happen. And uh, it looks like it will support you come summer, but it's deceiving you because when you need it most, it's not there. It's dried up. So we find this kind of language in Jeremiah 15, 18. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuseth to be healed? Wilt thou be altogether unto me as a liar, as waters that fail? These other nations would receive Judah's gifts, but they were deceitful. They were liars. They would receive the gifts, and they said, we would, we'll be there for you. We'll fight for you. But it was all deceit. It was like a, a winter stream that dried up come summer. And so, again, we can't trust in, in really anybody but God. Now, I don't know what to make of the last statement there in verse 15. It says, He shall come unto Adullam, uh, the glory of Israel. The reason why this is confusing for me personally is I read it as the glory of Israel is Adullam. And some read it a little bit different. I'll talk about that. But Adullam seems to picture a place of safety. We read about David when he fled to the cave of Adullam and for, for security. For sure, the king of Israel would disrupt their safety. He would... Uh, shake up all that. They, they wouldn't feel secure. The Bible says in Isaiah 10, 3, And what will ye do in the day of visitation, and in the desolation which shall come from far? To whom will ye flee for help? And where will ye leave your glory? This is all very interesting to me, and, and I don't really know if, if this is the right way of thinking, but my understanding here is that they would leave their, speaking of Isaiah 10, they would leave their glory somewhere that they could pick it back up later. Where are you going to leave your glory for safekeeping? Where are you going to put it? Um, something that can be retrieved. And so Isaiah asked, where are you going to leave it? But their place of safety, Adullam, where they may place their glory, their honor, it would be overrun by the enemy. Is this making sense on what this might mean? I, I'm doing the best I can on these, and I just don't know sometimes. But I think it's telling us in verse 15 that the Assyrians would take the place of safety. They would, they would overcome that place of safety where they thought their honor could be preserved. You know, if we can just get to the stronghold, if we can just get to the keep, if we can just maintain some identity, we'll keep our glory, we'll keep our honor. And yet, the Assyrians were going to march right through, and they were going to get right up to Jerusalem, like we've been saying. And so some see this as the glory of Israel. Like I said, there's, there's an alternate view here. Some see this as the glory of Israel referring to the king of Assyria who the house of Israel wants trusted in. Like I said, they want trusted in the Assyrians. And, and so when you read it with that mindset, he, the Assyrians, shall come unto Adullam, the glory of Israel. He, the glory of Israel, is now going to be the king of Assyria. So that's, that's one thought. I'm not dogmatic on any of that, and I welcome your opinion, but not now. Let's uh, end this morning with verse 16. <laughs> Woo! We made it to the end! Make thee bold. 
and pull thee for thy delicate children. Enlarge thy baldness as the eagle. For they are gone into they are gone into captivity from thee. So we see more captivity language as we close out this opening chapter. Pictures of mourning and great distress. Amos 8.10 says, And I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation, and I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head. And I will make it as the mourning of an only son and the end thereof as a bitter day. It says in verse 16 that they were to shave their heads for their children. And, and this is just a heartbreaking verse. And if you didn't catch it there when I read it in Amos, and I will make it as the mourning of an only son. They're going to lose their children. They, they were going to be in mourning for their children. God warned of a coming captivity if Israel rebelled against him all the way back in Deuteronomy 28. And 28.41 says, Thou shalt beget sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. How sad that the parents' rebellion would so affect the children. The children's future is gone because of a rebellious parent. Isn't that humbling? We need to be mindful that our sin not only affects us, but it affects others. It affects our entire family. And if you choose to live in rebellion, it's going to affect your children to some degree. How many families are separated today because of sinful, rebellious decisions? Amen. Mourn for your children. And they're just delicate children. Man, my heart breaks for these young kids that are just victims of their parents' stupidity. They're being led away captive because we just won't sell out for God. Well, my kid's going to miss out on this and this. He's not going to miss out on anything. It's a joy to serve the Lord. So I want to ask you this morning as I close, where do you place your trust? When troubles come, do you run to the world? Do you look to Egypt? Or do you run to God? Are you trying to figure out everything on your own? Or do you trust in the Lord? Where do you go when the enemy comes? And how will your decisions for or against God affect your children? I've said before, one of the main reasons I'm here is because I knew it was God's will. And if I wasn't going to be in God's will, I knew it was going to negatively impact my children. I want my family to be blessed. I don't know about you. So how are your decisions for God affecting your family? Don't rebel against God. It's only going to lead to disastrous conclusions. It's never good. But I want to encourage you this morning. Go to God for help in everything. Run to Him. He needs to be your stronghold, your hiding place, your tower, your pavilion. He's your protection. That's why He died. 
And it's amazing we'll trust Him for salvation, but not to take care of us after salvation. So we need to learn to trust the Lord this morning. And if you're tiptoeing on the verge of captivity, you need to get your heart right. Amen? All right, let's pray.